Now, uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We're in our 10th week of a walk through this New Testament letter or New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. It's actually one of the more complicated books of the Bible, and we're taking our time to sort of walk through and unpack all the things that are taking place here. And, and if you haven't been with us, let me just say that one of the things that Paul has been doing from the outset is revealing this tension that I think exists in every single human being that walks the planet. He's, he's revealing this reality that there is an intrinsic desire for human beings to live lives of faith. We want to feel, we want to live lives that are connected to the one who made us. There is this desire to be shaped by a vibrant faith, to be people of faith. Um, there's a desire to be molded by and have this connection to our, our God. And, and that desire is in all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether or not you've, you've said yes to following Jesus or not. Um, our level of awareness of where that leads may be different, but in every single person, no matter where you're born, no matter where you live, no matter where you land on the, the globe, you have this intrinsic, this thing inside of you that says, I want to be connected to the one who, who made me. And so Paul's identifying this. He said, we want to be people of faith. But the challenge or the problem um, is also existent in all of us as well. And uh, if I could summarize what Paul has said so far in this letter in kind of plain modern English is this. He says, yeah, we all have this desire, but we're all messed up. That's basically how he summarizes it. He's like, you're all messed up. We're all messed up. But there is a solution. And now we're starting to unpack the solution to our brokenness. Last week, Pastor Bo was here teaching and she did an amazing job. And now this week in chapter seven, we're getting to the bottom of our brokenness and we're figuring things out. But it isn't easy. And I just want to admit this. There, um, there's an aspect to this that's actually difficult to do, but it is necessary for us to do this. In fact, um, let me see this. When I look at the book of Romans, you know, and I'm obviously looking at the whole thing. Chapter 7, which we're getting into today, if you have your Bible, you can open up there. Chapter 7, I look at chapter 7, and I think if we could just hit the fast forward button and skip this part, I would love to. Like, it's a little bit redundant. Uh, Paul seems to be belaboring his point. There's a part of me that goes, no, no, let's get to the good stuff. Because by the way, Romans chapter 8 is amazing. Like, what we're starting into next week is really, really good. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole book, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And so I'm like, maybe we could just kind of fast forward skip the rock across the top of chapter seven and just land ourselves in chapter eight. Um, but if we did that, we would miss something really critical. And so we want to slow down because I think there's something here for us. There's something good in us leaning in even to this difficult reality. So um, it, it's very similar to something that happened to me this week. Um, this Last weekend, Sherry and I, we were out of town. We were performing a wedding uh, out in North Idaho with just some people that we love and uh, got to spend some time there with them, had a great time. Um, but after an early morning, we actually got up early to come back to, come back to Portland. And when we got up and got in the car, we were leaving. We went a back road. And in the middle of like North Idaho, small town of a thousand people, I get a flat tire. That's always fun. Good way to start your day. And we were exhausted. We had a long weekend. We were really tired. So long drive. We switched drivers a few times because we were that tired. We finally get home. And uh, we had one of those times you quietly unpack the, road, the car, you know, like you know well enough. You probably shouldn't talk to each other right now because it's not going to go well. 
Some of you have been married long enough to know what I'm talking about. You're just like, let's just unpack the car and let's just keep peaceful, right? And so we unpack the car. We get the stuff in the house. We put all our things away, dirty clothes, put the luggage away. We look at each other and say, why don't we go to the store and get some stuff for a salad? Let's keep it simple, nice and clean. And so we're tired, but we open the front door. And as I step on the front porch, there is this familiar, unwanted odor that I recognize. See, our home is not on a city sewer system. It is on a septic system. And all of the waste from our home goes into uh, an apparatus that's called a macerator. For some reason, people call this a honey pot. I don't know why, because there is nothing like honey inside this pot, but we call it a honey pot. And so I get this whiff as I step out the door and I realize even in my exhaustion that something has gone wrong with the honey pot. And so I open the hatch to see that our honey pot is just churning and it's not really doing anything. It's up full up to the brim. And so I realize there is like, there's some sort of malfunction here. And so I do the most simple thing. Like I'm not in the mood for this. I'm tired. We've been driving all day, changed the tire, all, all the stuff, you know. And so I get down on my knees and I just, there's a plug there. And I thought, I'm just gonna do like the control alt delete thing. I'm just gonna unplug it for a minute. Cause you do this with your internet, right? You do this with your router. So I was like, it's like a router, right? It's gotta be like that. So I just counted to like 10, plug it back in, nothing changes. And I was like, well, I'll do it again. Cause sometimes that works, right? So I do it again. I'm like, just two fingers here, plugging it, plugging it back in. And then there's this pipe that goes into it. And I thought, well, I really don't wanna get dirty. And so I'm like kneeled down and I'm playing with the pipe with two fingers and something feels really loose. And so I'm like, well, maybe if I hold the pipe and plug it in and unplug it, like literally I'm doing the most basic, I don't wanna mess with this kind of thing. Then I realized, I think I just got, I got to take the lid off. And so I pull the lid off. And at this point, I'm realizing that the solution to my problem is going to require more than just two fingers, right? <laughs> there are moments in a man's life, <laughs> at least this man's life, when you have to dig deep into your soul, Right? You have to draw strength from some untapped place that you didn't know you had. Um, I, I, I leaned in. In fact, here's a shot that, uh, uh, just a shot that my wife took. Of course, she's taking pictures of this. Um, this is me. This is right before I fully, up to my, uh, my armpits, went into a 30-gallon jug of raw sewage, like, and I'm digging around and working with this thing. Because I came to this point of realizing if... Catch this, catch this. If I'm gonna fix this problem, I'm gonna have to be willing to get into the mess. Are you with me on this? Do you see where I'm going? Now, I'm not saying that Romans chapter seven is a spiritual honeypot. I'm not saying that. But it would be easy to avoid these things. And there's, there's two reasons that we're not going to, and I'll get to those in just a moment. But first, I'm gonna read the first 17 verses, and then we're gonna start to unpack this. We're gonna dive into this together. So beginning in verse one, Paul says this, starting in Romans chapter seven. He says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. 
Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Do you see what I'm saying about this, right? Not the easiest thing to get through. Where is he going with this? In fact, part of me, like I said, wants to just get to Romans 8, because it's really good. Next week. But there's two reasons that we don't do this. And the first one is just really philosophical around the Bible and, and our own faith. The first reason we don't do this is that we need to dive into the things that are complicated to understand. Uh, we have this tendency, and if we have this tendency, and we do, uh, we have this tendency to skip over the things that are fairly complicated in the scriptures, in the Bible. We see things that are hard to understand, and we go, oh, I was going to move to this other stuff. And so we leave these places untouched or unaddressed. And what happens is that slowly causes fissures in our faith. I believe that causes us to have these little spots where we question, and now we carry with this, yeah, you're right, you know, the Bible is kind of confusing, and I don't know what that thing means. And so then something happens in our life, or somebody says something, and we go, yeah, you know, back there, there, there is some stuff I just don't get. And so for that reason, when we run across stuff that's like confusing or you don't understand it, we're gonna take the time to dive in because I think that bolsters our faith. We need to understand this stuff. But the second and the main reason we do this is that Paul says something at the end of this in the next few verses that make all of what he just said make sense. So Paul gets personal in the final verses of chapter seven. Suddenly human, like he's been presenting like a robot up to this point, and now all of a sudden he's starting to get very human, very honest, very open about who he is and what he's walking through. It's like he calms down and he sits down and he says, I want to tell you something about my life. And what he says, if you're like me, you listen to him and you go, you're right, that's exactly what I experienced. Listen to this, verse 18, he continues on and he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So do you get it here? You see it? You know what he's talking about, right? Because I know, I know what he's talking about. There's like something you become aware of, right? There's those moments when you become aware, like there's this thing inside of me. Maybe it's a character issue. Maybe it's a behavior that you keep repeating. There, there's something that you look at and you go, man, I see this thing and something has got to give. Like I need to change this. Like this is a behavior. Like I know I can't keep doing this thing. I can't keep thinking this kind of thing. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's something that you do. Maybe it's something that you think about certain people. Maybe it's uh, an idol. You wouldn't call it an idol, but maybe there's something you give so much attention to. It, it actually is an idol. Um, maybe it's something that you feel on a consistent basis. Maybe it's a desire that you can't seem to suppress. There's that thing, right? And you know, you go, I, something has to change. I have to change this thing in who I am. I know it needs to be different. And yet it's so deep and it's so intertwined in your soul that no matter how hard you try or no matter how much effort you put in, it just doesn't seem to to go away. Paul says, just like us, I keep doing what I don't want to do. You feel that way sometimes? You go, man, I, I really wish this would change, but I just, he identifies, he's like, this is me. I keep doing stuff I don't want to do. And isn't that a problem, truly? I mean, I, I have lived long enough in my faith with Jesus, and I, I, I understand this, and I, I hope a lot of you in the room do too, that um, I don't follow Jesus or believe in, in the word of Jesus because he's gonna make my life easier. It's not about Jesus making my life comfortable. It's about Jesus making my life full and full and comfortable are not always the same thing, right? And so I know that Jesus didn't just come to make my life comfortable, but let me say this. There are things in my life that I look at and I think, I think Jesus would like this to be different, right? Like seriously, you come to the point where you stop and go, Jesus wants flourishing. We talk about shalom here at B4 all the time, about how Jesus wants flourishing, human flourishing at every level. And there are places where we look at our own lives and we go, I think this is an area of my life that Jesus wants to restore. Like this isn't me being selfish. This isn't me asking to win the lottery. This isn't asking for a new convertible. This is me saying like, there's this character flaw in me and, or there's this thing I keep doing over and over and it's disintegrating and it's not good and I'd love to see it change and you think, Jesus, you'd probably like to see it change too. How come we can't change those things? Why? Well, what Paul unpacks, I think, is extremely important. In fact, as we move forward in Romans, we're gonna see more and more the importance and daily impact of the reality that he's getting to here, especially as it relates to how you and I experience transformation. But Paul unpacks a deep division that exists inside of the human heart. Something that dwells within us. This isn't temporary. It is at home in us. And this thing in us results in moments when we simply do what we don't want to do. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody remember that classic? Some of you, a few of you, those of you that are in school know that one for sure, right? 
Well, if you read the story, you know that there's this moment where he's observing his own life. This is kind of early on, and he says this. He says, there's an incongruous compound of good and evil. There's this existence of both good and evil, and they're incongruent. These things, I see both of these things in me. You ever feel this way? You look at your life and you go, man, I, I have all of these great motives, and I know that this, these things are in my heart, and then there's the other things that are incongruent that are also simultaneously there. And so the story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the story goes that he creates a serum to separate the two incongruent parts of who he is so that at night he'll be one person, during the day he'll be the other. And then shockingly he discovers he's far more evil than he ever imagined, right? And so Edward Hyde, Hyde is his last name. His name is a tip of the hat to what he's been hiding, his hideousness. He does all of these deplorable things, things that Jekyll is abhorred by, and so then Jekyll tries to overcome this. He says, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to overcome. That's, the whole story is him saying, no, I'm going to suppress the hide in me. And I'm just going to be this, this upstanding moral person. But eventually he winds up taking his life. Meanwhile, there's this other character, this friend who is kind of watching this and reading the letter that he leaves. And at one point, uh, he, he's really making this point that, this, that no matter who you are, no matter how brilliant you are, at the core of our being, we have a capacity for evil, a capacity for hideousness. And occasionally, there are circumstances in our life that act like a serum that bring out the worst in us, right? There's some stressful situation at work or there's maybe a rocky season in a marriage. Maybe you're married to a difficult person. Maybe you're shackled to an impossible boss. Maybe you've got a, a health issue that's just nagging and won't go away. Whatever it is, suddenly it reveals the hide in you, and you see it. Sufjan Stevens wrote a song called John Way Gacy, and, and you might wonder, why would you write a song about a serial killer? And you listen to the lyrics, and it's a really strange song. Um, but then you get to the end, and he sings these lyrics. He says, in my very best behavior, I'm just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. Do you believe that you have the capacity for evil? I do. I believe it about myself. And when we're honest, when we stop pretending, when we calm down like Paul, we say, yeah, you know, there's something deeper that's going on. There's this contradiction. There's this part of me that wants to do good, and there's this part of me that keeps gravitating back toward. So, so what do we do? If this is the case, what do we do about this? And usually what we try doesn't work. In fact, what we try is what Paul is talking about right before he got to this very honest moment that we're looking at here. And so I want to work backwards through this text all the way back to the beginning. The main solution that people try is, is to turn to moral behavior, and it doesn't work. In verses 7 to 17, Paul's talking about the law. And because he's a Jew, he's referencing the Mosaic law. But this holds true of all cultures and all belief systems. In fact, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, he compares Islam and Confucianism and Hinduism and Judaism and even Christianity. And he reveals there's this remarkable convergence that all of the moral laws are identical. Morality, we define it very similarly. And what most people do, no matter where you live, no matter what continent you've been born on, is you try to wipe out the badness 
with your morality by being good. We try to be really Jekyll. I'm going to really be good. I'm going to really white knuckle it. I'm going to work on my behavior. And so we read the law and we teach the law and we practice the law. And we think the more I study the law, the, the, the more I'll overcome those bad things in my life. But it doesn't work. It won't work. Modifying our behavior never works. In fact, verses eight to nine offer this sketch that I appreciate. Paul gives of himself. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. He refers to the the 10th commandment about coveting right before this. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So the commandment about not coveting produced covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What is he saying here? You kind of listen to this and go, what's Paul up to? What's he talking about? He says, I was alive. Listen, I was like a team that still had a shot at the playoffs. That's what he's saying. I was still in the running. He looked at his life and he said, look at me. Look how good I'm doing. My life is good. I'm a good person. I'm in the running. And the reason that he tended to look at the the, the law this way was that's what the law was usually focused on, was external behavior. And so he looked at his life and he goes, listen, I'm not not going to temples and I'm I'm not sleeping with temple prostitutes or bowing down to different idols. I'm not... I'm, I'm not like, you know, I'm, I call my parents every Sunday after church and check in with them, right? I haven't used foul language towards my neighbor or his dog in at least a month, you know? He's looking at all the behaviors, right? He's going, look at me, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a good guy, that's what he's saying. But then he goes, the 10th commandment slayed me. Why did it slay him? The 10th commandment says, don't covet. How can you tell if somebody's coveting? You can't, right? So Paul says there was this thing that, that he saw, don't covet. And even though nobody could see it, there was something in his heart. He was insecure. He was jealous. He was prideful. He was a mess. And nobody could see it. And there was nothing. What can you do about that? How do you change that? What behavior modification do you have to stop coveting something that's in your heart? It's deep. It's inside of you. Nobody knows you covet but you. And so Paul suddenly realizes this isn't about behavior. It's about something deeper. It's about who I am inside. And he realizes he's dead. The moral law created deadness in him. So go back to Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll wrote this in this letter to his friend. He says, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past, and my resolve was fruitful. You know how well I did. But one, on one fine, clear day, I was sitting in the sun in Regent's Park, and I reflected and smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my act of goodwill with their lazy cruelty. And at the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and dreadful shuddering, and I looked down, and I once again was Edward Hyde. Is it not the scariest of moments when with all of our effort, And all of our trying, we begin to live out our horribleness. Why did this happen? It happened because of his goodness. He was thinking about how much better he was than everybody else. And through his goodness, he became Hyde. Why? Because there are two ways to be selfish. The first way is your overt badness, right? Just to say, ain't nobody going to tell me how to live my life, right? You can do that. You can say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be my own God. You can do that. But you can also be self-righteous. 
And by being self-righteous, you behave so well that you believe that God has no choice but to give you what you want and that you then become your own savior. But when you do that, and you suddenly realize that you're still just as insecure and you're still bitter and you're still competitive, you're just as hideous as you were before, then it slays you. You realize it hasn't changed you. As hard as we've tried to deal with our darkness, it just doesn't go away. Not by being a good person. Can I be really clear on that? We don't change by trying to be good people. You need a transformation of the motives of your heart. And if you don't, you're dead. That's what Paul says. So what really solves this? Let's go back to verses one to seven. Uh, If you're like me, when I first started reading this, you're like, why is Paul talking about marriage? This woman who was married and then her husband died? What was that all about? I wanna make sense of this because this is beautiful. I love this. He's dealing with the question that's, that's really posed in verse seven. He says, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So do we just ignore the law? That's the question. And in verses one to four, he says something super interesting. And, and this strange marriage illustration suddenly makes sense. Let me just read it again. He says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So, so we skip down to, to the middle of verse three. He says, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, so you go, well, why marriage? Why is he using this illustration? Well, first, culturally, and especially for a woman in that culture, there was no more binding contract than the contract of marriage. There was nothing more binding than that. If you were a woman and you were married, you were in that marriage. It was a binding contract in that culture. And the the law of God, if you think about this, the law of God, this moral law that we live with, it doesn't go away. It's universal. It's everywhere. It's binding. There's no more binding contract than the law of God. So that's that's the first reason he uses this. But secondly, he uses marriage in a way that that those of us that are married in the room, we can understand this. And, And those of you that are not yet married, I hope you can see this in the days ahead. Our self image is the product of what people say about you all of your life. We get a sense of who we are by the things that people speak to us. That helps us shape our identity, helps us shape our understanding of who we are. People say things about us, and it actually impacts who we understand ourselves to be. But when you get married, because of the power of marriage, that person can turn over everything that you've come to believe about yourself. So, so if everybody says, like, he's ugly or she's ugly, if you've grown up thinking, like, you're not, intelligent, you're not smart enough, you're not good, you haven't done all the right things, if you grew up hearing all these things, but then suddenly you meet this person, they say, you're beautiful, you're so handsome. 
or you're brilliant and I love the way you solve problems. And they suddenly begin to speak these things to you. There's this powerful transformation. Your identity, your motive, who you are is radically reshaped by this person. Marriage does this. There's nothing that does it the way that marriage does. But what if this person doesn't say those kinds of things? What if this person makes you a worse person? We're in the most binding of contracts. We are married to the law of God. Being married to the law means you are finding yourself. You are finding your identity from your performance, right? And the dominant motivational structure of your heart is fear, right? I'm obeying because I don't want to mess up. I don't want to make him angry. That's the idea, right? It's like that old Julia Roberts movie, Sleeping with the Enemy, right? You're married to the law. That's what it's like. If you're married to the law, you become what the law keeps showing you to be. It holds you back. It beats you down. And so you tell the truth or, or you do this thing or you do that thing, not because you, you love the law, but because you fear the law. But Paul says, but if there's a death, well, that changes everything, right? If there's a death, then you can become the spiritual spouse of someone else. And what if this person has something different to say to you? That's what he's getting at in verse four. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you see what Paul's saying? There was a death. And with Jesus and the cross, the marriage to the law was ended, and you and I are now bonded to something or someone else, someone other than the law. And what we discover is this, that real change, the kind of deep, meaningful change, comes to us when we understand that he looks at us and says, I love you, and I have hopes for you, and I believe in you, and I'm for you that's when real change begins to happen. That's what changes us. Now, instead of being motivated by fear or bondage, we're motivated by gratitude. We're motivated by joy. We're motivated by love. We see that we've been released from this ugly thing and now given to this beautiful thing. I believe that's why the Bible uses the bride and bridegroom imagery over and over again to talk about the church, that the church is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. It uses that to, to give us a sense of this dynamic. It's another way of saying, let his spousal love completely reconfigure the motivational structure of your heart. Let his love restructure what motivates you in your heart. So then when you find yourself, when you're not doing what you want to do, but you're doing the thing you don't want to do, when you find yourself being who you don't want to be, this actually changes everything. It has implications on everyone, everywhere. Because every other religion, every religion just says, you better obey or else, except for Jesus. And he says, your bondage, your marriage to that law is gone. Jesus says, you're loved, and let that love change what you want from the inside out. Are you with me? Yes. There's no need to hide 
Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand with me? My dream is that there would be a people who are so impacted by the grace and the love of Jesus that we would live so differently in our world that our world would long for the Jesus that we know. And so today I want to offer a benediction to you that you would be those kinds of people. So may you be men and women who experience and understand at the depth of your being the love and the grace of Jesus. May you be released from the fear and the browbeating and the bondage of the law. And may you discover the love that Jesus has for you. And may you be free in his name. Amen. Love you guys so much. Continuing on next week in Romans 8. Look forward to you guys being here with us. Any questions, stop at the info center today. You guys feel free to hang out, talk to some friends. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later. Sunday. See you later. Sunday. See you later. Sunday. See you later.